Okay, all right, let's read our scripture for this morning. We will be looking at Ephesians 6, verses 5 through 9, which says, Slaves, obey your earthly masters with deep respect and fear. Serve them sincerely as you would serve Christ. Try to please them all the time, not just when they are watching you. And as slaves of Christ, do the will of God with all your heart. Work with enthusiasm as though you were working for the Lord rather than for people. And remember that the Lord will reward each one of us for the good we do, whether we are slaves or free. And masters, treat your slaves in the same way. Don't threaten them. Remember, you both have the same master in heaven, and he has no favorites. John. Good morning. For those here for the first time, my name is James. I'm one of the pastors here, and it's a, such a, a joy to have you guys with us as we're entering into um, chapter 6, the, verse 5, as we get into Ephesians and looking at the area of, of slavery today. So th- this morning, we're, we're looking at the, the topic of, of slavery. And not necessarily an easy one to talk about, but uh, most of my life, since I was 17, I've lived overseas as a missionary. And one of the things in living overseas as a missionary is you are constantly faced with awkward social situations. You're faced with situations where there's constant misunderstanding and where you have to, you're often making assumptions about other cultures. And whenever you assume your own cultural understanding on a foreign culture, usually you end up being wrong. Usually you end up either in an awkward situation or hurting someone or hurting yourself. And I could give endless examples of where I've made cultural faux pas and misunderstandings to sometimes hilarious conclusions. Um, But other times it's downright dangerous in doing so. Uh, when I first moved to Asia a number of years ago, uh, I was one of the times I walking across the street and there was a light and it was a busy street of a very, very populous city of tens of millions of people. And um, I, was, I was walking across the street at a red light and there was like an area for clearly pedestrians, clearly marked to go. Uh, I noticed a bus that was coming forward towards me, but it was a red light and it was a pedestrian walking area. So I obviously began to walk in the middle of the road. And uh, clearly the bus driver had a different assumption of what a red light meant. Um, and uh, he assumed it meant he had the right of way. I assumed it meant I have the right of way, and he was bigger. Uh, and so I barely, barely lived through that moment as I remember jumping to the sideways. as I looked up at this driver who was screaming at me because I had the audacity to walk into the road that had a red light on it. And sometimes it can be very dangerous. We can get run over in many ways by our cultural assumptions. Um, and these assumptions especially apply in, in, in so much parts of life, but anytime we go cross-culturally, where we know that we aren't supposed to impose our worldview upon it. And living in China for a number of years, the, the, there's an unkind phrase in, in China they use to describe Westerners, and specifically Americans, and that word is da it, and it means big-nosed, uh, is literally what it translates as. And it refers to the size of our nose, of course, but much more than that, it refers to the way in which we impose our culture on other cultures. As Americans, our reputation isn't always the best overseas, as I've learned from living in like 50 different countries over the years, um, that uh, we're, 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 we're bashed pretty heavily, and primarily that idea that we impose our culture and our ideas. We assume we have a better understanding of the world. And when we assume our culture... Uh, our idea of the world, it, it obviously has consequences. But the problem is, we don't just do that when we travel, we often do it when we come to Scripture as well. And when we do it when we come to Scripture, we can have radical misunderstandings of what the text is saying. When we assume that our understanding of the world, and we assume that, that we understand what this text is saying, and what that culture was written into, and, and how they would understand it, we can often completely misunderstand the text. And you see, the problem is when we say, I know what it's talking about, like an issue like slavery or women or children or any of these kinds of things, we, we, we immediately assume that we have a better understanding of what was going on two or 4,000 years ago when the Bible was written to a different people and a different continent. They didn't even know the, this continent we're living in existed. And so we can't impose our understanding upon it. 
So we approach Scripture, we must come with humility, with seeking to understand what did this mean to the people it was written to? What did it mean within its culture, within its context? How would they have understood it? And so today, as we talk about this subject of slavery, it's even more important that we first seek to understand what did they mean by that term, because it's probably a little different than what we think about it. Because most Christians, when they read this passage of Scripture, they, they immediately have an awkwardness about it. Like, do, do we really believe this as Christians? Are we really, did Paul not con, con, condemn slavery? Is he, is he condoning it? And we get kind of awkward around this place in the Bible. And so many Christians, we just avoid it. Or as if we just kind of make it all about the workplace. In fact, every time I, I prepare a sermon, I've been preaching in America for like a year now. And so I'm trying to like learn how to preach in this context, in this culture. And, and so I often read, listen to, kind of, and read what other preachers are doing on this subject. Almost every sermon I looked at, the outlines on this stuff, this is all about this passage about the workplace. Because that's the most easy, translatable way to apply this passage directly to the workplace. And, and yes, it has, and we'll even do that today to some degree. But the reality is if we ignore what this passage is actually talking about, and just make it the workplace, we completely misunderstand the text. If all we do is see this about kind of a different way of understanding work, I mean, yeah, it's true, but it's, it's really not the full intention of the text. It'd be like if someone gave you like some expensive samurai sword and you just used it as a letter opener. I mean, sure, it'll work. I mean, it's, it's sharp and it's effective, but that's not its intended purpose. And, and sure, it'll work in that setting, but it's for so much more than that. And so I want to take us some time this morning and look at what is this passage actually saying about slavery? And to do that, we need to look at what does it mean to the people it's written to. So the, the passage begins in verse 5 and says, Slaves, obey your earthly masters with deep respect and fear. Serve them sincerely as you would serve Christ. So is Paul condoning slavery in this passage? I mean, it's so easy for us to immediately assume that. How can he tell slaves to obey and submit to their masters? I mean, for many of us, we probably have some image of maybe from um, Kunte Kinte, from the roots in the back of our mind of pictures of slavery in this mind. But he's telling slaves to submit to their masters. Maybe that's what Samuel L. Jackson was thinking about in Django Unchained as he's, you know, submitting to Leonardo DiCaprio or something like that. I mean, how could a slave master be, be asked to be nice to their slaves? And how can slaves be asked to be nice to their masters? Isn't telling a, 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 a master to be a good slave master like telling Hitler to like be a good mass murderer? I mean, how are we supposed to interpret these things? And the reason we struggle with this is because we impose our cultural understanding upon it. We assume that it's talking about what we consider modern chattel slavery. And the reality is that is not what Scripture's talking about here. And so we need to take a minute to look at what they meant by this. Because the truth is, our understanding of slavery, all, most scholars would say, provides more harm than help to actually understanding this passage. Because at that time, it's not as we know it of the modern chattel slavery, of this slavery that involves abducting West Africans and bringing them across the world. It wasn't a good form of slavery by any means, but it was radically different. And our understanding can often hurt our interpretation more than help it. Because you see, the, the, the kind of slavery we're familiar with is actually explicitly condemned in Scripture. Not just condemned, the death penalty is spoken over anyone who would be involved in any part of that form of slavery that we know of. It's completely condemned in Scripture. If you go to Exodus chapter 21, verse 15, it says this. Whoever steals a man and sells him, and anyone found in possession of him, shall be put to death. You see, Scripture completely condemns what we would consider modern forms of slavery. Not just condemns it says the death penalty is upon anyone involved in any part of that process of slavery deserves to die. It doesn't get much more clear than that. 
So Paul doesn't need to condemn that kind of slavery. It's already been condemned, and the death penalty has been spoken over it. And then in 1 Timothy, Paul again says that those who are involved in the slave trade, slave traders, also are condemned by Scripture as well. So my job today is no way to defend ancient forms of slavery, but I want to be able to show that there's a difference between what we understand and what Scripture understood, because otherwise we'll have a twisted view as we seek to interpret this. So this kind of slavery that we are familiar with did not end in 1865 on June 19th. In fact, it's going up every year. In 2016, there were 40 million slaves. In 2021, there were 50 million slaves globally around the world experiencing forced labor conditions of modern slavery. It's not something that's over. It's still going on today. In fact, I had, I would say, the privilege of being involved in helping people get out of the slave trade industry. When I was in South Africa, I used to work as an interpreter for the local police station for Chinese women from mainland China that had been abducted, that were involved in the slave trafficking industry and become slaves to brothels in South Africa. And what incredible experience it was to be able to translate for girls as they were freed from slavery. There's nothing more exhilarating than seeing actual slaves freed from actual slavery and returned to their homes. It was amazing one time, it was two girls that actually came from the same part of the same city in China that I used to live in. They knew the, the town and even the street that, I, grew, that I, I spent time with, and we could even use the same dialect of the local regional dialect there and talk to each other. And, and God brought them together the same place, just across the world in South Africa from mainland China. But back during ancient times, slavery was very, very different than what we think of it. Still horrific, but very different. And again, to make sure we don't get run over by this bus of cultural misunderstanding, let's look at some of the things that were different. So first, in, in slavery at that time, one of the big differences is that no one at that time saw slavery as evil, right? Slavery was not considered evil by anyone at that time. In fact, there's not a single writing you can find in ancient literature that speaks against it or speaks of the idea of abolition of slavery. In fact, over 35% of the Roman Empire were slaves. 35%. In fact, some cities, it was 75%. When you go to Romans chapter 16, and it talks about all the leaders in, Roman, in the church of Rome, over half of those names in Romans chapter 16 are slave names, meaning over half of the leadership of the church in Rome were slaves or had been slaves at one point. For the ancient world, slavery had always existed, and no one could even imagine a world without slavery. To imagine a world without slavery would be like a fish imagining a world without water. Right? It'd be like imagining a world where money just no longer existed, or just saying, I mean, can't we live in a world where just no one is mean or rude? Right? My children ask for that all the time. Like, I mean, that, that, that would be like it would be for them to imagine a world without slavery. The great scholar N.T. Wright had this to say about this passage. He says, Paul could no more envisage a world without slavery than we can envisage a world without electricity. Most of what the modern world takes for granted, television and computers and, and a million lesser inventions, are impossible without electricity. And yet for most of human history, it was unknown in the same way the way Paul's world worked was through slaves taking a vital place in most households. Do you get that understanding? That this is just something that they couldn't possibly conceive of. Slavery was not a concept to the Ephesians. It was an idea. Almost every single human was impacted by slavery at that time. Every single person's life. The vast majority of the population were either were a slave, had been a slave at one time, or owned a slave. That included almost everyone in the population would fit in one of those three categories. So what was slavery like? So a few different differences between today. So first, slavery back then was not based upon race or ethnicity. It was not in any way racial. It was, slavery was an equal opportunity offender, right? It was across every people. The primary way that people became slaves was because Rome would conquer lands and make them prisoners of war, and that was how most people became slaves, wherever they conquered. 
After that, the next most common reason to become a slave was people would be selling themselves into slavery to pay off debts, becoming someone that, that owed a debt to someone, or because they wanted to get citizenship, and you could get Roman citizenship through being a slave eventually. And so they would do it to pay off debts. Other times it was done because you were born to a slave or because we talked about last week, sometimes babies were abandoned by their fathers and they were left and then those children became slaves. Number two, at least half of the slaves were freed at that time. Manumission was, was a common thing and an expectation among slaves. Over 50% of slaves were freed by the age of 30 years old in that culture. Again, that doesn't make it right. It's still messed up and evil, but a radically different context when most people had the genuine expectation to be freed. In fact, Felix, the Roman Judean governor, the one who's mentioned Acts as having thrown Paul in prison, that Felix, the top Roman government official in the area, was actually formerly a slave who got his freedom and then eventually rose, got his citizenship, rose to become one of the most powerful Roman officials in the land. There was no... Um, Sorry, on top of that, sorry, many slaves were able to purchase their own freedom and thereby also able to gain Roman citizenship. So next one, number three, education. Slaves worked at every position of the, of the social order. In that culture in Rome, having Roman citizenship was a really big deal. And by doing that, they often didn't want to work in other ways. It was an elite class. And so they trained slaves to work in literally every single field, from doctors to lawyers to bankers to boat captains. You name it, there were slaves doing that position. Everything but the highest, highest level was done by slaves. In fact, many, many slaves were better educated and better trained than their own owners or their own masters because they were the ones who were the doctors and the lawyers and the surgeons and, and all, the, all else of what they were doing. There was no slave class in that culture. To be a slave wasn't a lower class thing because slaves were present at every class. In fact, many church leaders were actual slaves who were then teaching their masters who were in the church with them because they were better educators and better communicators. And number four, slaves at that time could earn money. Right? They could earn. They could own property. And only that, they could own other slaves. I mean, Jesus speaks about this in Matthew 28. He talks about the parable of the unmerciful servant of a slave who then is forgiven a massive debt by his master... And then that slave, it says, then goes and imprisons his own slave because he couldn't pay back the debt that he owed him. So this was just part of the culture. So it was quite different. The quality of life of a slave in ancient Rome was completely dependent upon the master and how they treated them and how they viewed it. So you see why what Paul's saying here has such a massive influence. Because the quality of life of a slave was completely dependent upon the way the master viewed slavery. Because the horrific reality is that a slave was property in that time. And they were frequently abused with hideous cruelty. Women could be used in any way the master deemed fit. And there's countless stories of horrific rape and trauma and abuse and, and torture and, 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 and starvation. Yet here in Ephesians, we see Paul not treating them as tools. Aristotle literally said a slave is just a tool, an animal that can talk. It's just a tool. That's all it is. That was the view at the time. But Paul is saying, no, these are people, these are human beings, they are followers of Jesus, they are, are made in God's image, and sometimes they're even leaders within the church, and he's, even though it's frustrating for us today, Paul never condemns this form of slavery. And he's not calling for an end to it, instead what we're going to see is he actually redefines what slavery is, and it completely undermines the entire institution of slavery. People often criticize the Bible and Paul for, for not specifically condemning Scripture. And I just want to emphasize again, the Bible does condemn slavery very, 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 very clearly. Paul doesn't condemn this form of slavery, 
But as we're going to see out again, if Christians actually live out the message Paul gives, that form of slavery will cease to exist. You know, scholars point out that Paul at no point ever advocates for slavery or defends it. He just speaks of it as, a pres- as like a present-day reality. And even if Paul believes slavery must end, which we don't know if he did, because to do so would be like a fish believing water doesn't exist. But even if he did, scholars would point out that it's almost impossible for him to actually say anything along those lines. So if he did, the Roman government would instantly stomp out any form of Christianity if he were to try to undermine what was the entire economic basis of the, of, of the world at that point. Instead, Paul redefines what slavery is. He filters the institution of slavery through the lens of Jesus Christ and his kingdom. And it's incredible what he does. And what we're left with is a radical picture of Jesus. Far more radical than what he said to husbands and wives. Far more radical than what he said to parents and children is what he's going to speak to slaves and masters in this passage. And what he's going to say is is, is it's the way of Jesus. Where slaves and masters become one body. Where they become one family, brothers and sisters in Christ, where they humbly serve one another in love. As Paul said in Galatians chapter 3, verse 28, he said, there is no longer Jew or Gentile, slave or free, male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. All are the same in Christ. And I so love how Paul takes the reality of who Jesus is and his call for us to live and love like Jesus. And in this letter, he applies it to every single area of life from parenting to children to marriage to all these areas and then to the most extreme example, slaves and masters. And what he's screaming through this is saying, I'm not exaggerating. This applies literally to every single corner of humanity. This calling to live in love like Jesus, to love one another the way he loves us. In this letter, Paul is showing what it meant for the message of the gospel to infiltrate every single part of society. And in this particular passage, the most extreme example is used so that we cannot in any way say, well, it doesn't apply in this circumstance, only in that one. So notice here also that Paul is speaking to slaves as though they have power and influence, which was not something understood of the culture at the time. He's not speaking to them just as slaves of earthly masters, but he redefines it, calling them slaves of Christ. Paul does not address slavery as though it's like a temporary condition that they're going to live, be in for five years or 50 years or, or something beyond that. But instead, he cares far more about who they are in Christ, being slaves of Christ, than the actual circumstances of, or vocation of the slavery. In fact, this is how Paul always introduces himself in letters, or oftentimes he does. Romans chapter 1, Paul introduces himself and says, I, Paul, am a slave of Christ. Later in the chapter, he says, you have been set free and you all have become slaves of Christ. In Colossians, he says, Epaphras is our fellow slave of Christ. In Philippians, he says, Paul and Timothy, we are both slaves of Christ. And Titus introduces Paul, a slave of Christ. In 2 Corinthians, he says, you are, or we are slaves of Jesus for your sake or for Jesus' sake. And it's not just Paul saying it all the time. Peter says it, introduces himself as Simon Peter, a slave and an apostle of Christ. Jesus' half-brother Jude introduces himself as saying, Jude, a slave of Christ. Again, what's amazing is that Paul does not see the institution of slavery as the primary problem. And again, if he was speaking about modern chattel slavery, I know he would use different language because that's specifically condemned, which again says that's why it's not that form of understanding. But he sees that slavery is yet another place, another vocation, another context in which we live out the reality of the kingdom of God. It's no different than any of the others. It's the perfect place to reflect Jesus to the world. 
So let's go back to our passage. I want to see something that Paul does intentionally here as we jump into it to look at. It's not visible in English, but it's really clear when you read it in the original language. And so let's read this with me. So chapter 6, verse 5 says, Slave, obey your earthly masters with deep respect and fear. Serve them sincerely as you would serve Christ. Try to please them all the time, not just when they are watching you. As slaves of Christ, do the will of God with all your heart. Work with enthusiasm as though you are working for the Lord rather than for people. Remember that the Lord will reward each one of us for the good we do, whether we are slaves or free. Masters, treat your slaves in the same way. Don't threaten them. Remember, you both have the same master in heaven and has no favorites. So he speaks of slaves and masters. But check this. When we look at this word that's similar in both in, in English, to, or sorry, in the Greek, in, to masters and to the Lord master, check this out. Verse 5 says, slaves, obey your earthly masters. The Greek word there is kurios, which means Lord or master. But then we jump down to verse 7, and he says, Work with enthusiasm as though you were working for the Lord. Curios, again. Same exact word now used referring to Christ as master, not just their earthly master. We keep reading, he says, As though you were working for, sorry, rather than for the people, verse 8, remember that the Lord, again, curios, referring to God in heaven, will reward each one of us for the good we do, whether we are slaves or free. Verse 9, now speaking of earthly masters, he says, Curios, again, same word, treat your slaves in the same way. Don't threaten them. Remember, you both have the same Curios in heaven, master in heaven. So what he's doing here is he's, he's combining these two ideas and saying, you are not slaves of an earthly master, but now this word master is not just your earthly master, this master is Christ as your heavenly master. So he's saying that all of you, whether you are slave or free, you have the same master. There is no different, as we're going to see the way he describes this. And it's directly stated there in verse verse 9, you are no longer a slave of any earthly master. You have one master, both slave and master have one master, and that is Christ. And this is a central argument that he's making here. And we're going to see it all through this text. That they are not slaves of any earthly kingdom, but of Christ alone. Paul is pointing them to their ultimate calling. And so let's jump in again. Verse 5, he says this. Slaves, obey your earthly masters with deep respect and fear. Serve them sincerely as you would serve Christ. Now again, telling a slave to obey their master, that's like telling a wife to submit to her husband. That's a no-brainer in that culture. There's nothing special, nothing weird about that. But look what he says next. With fear and reverence, and he goes on, serve them with sincerity as you would serve Christ. Now, that word sincerity there in the Greek, what it actually means is to have single, uh, (coughs) sorry, to be with singleness of heart, which means there's no, there's no division of understanding. This is a single purpose, single-mindedness, a singleness of heart, no ulterior motives of all, no faking it. Serve your masters with singleness of heart, with purity of your heart, but serve as directly serving Christ. Remember, many masters at that time were abusive and cruel. Some were terrible people. Not all slaves were privileged doctors and lawyers living comfortable lives. Many were laborers whose lives were incredibly difficult. And yet Paul is calling them to serve in this way. Sorry, I just lost my spot here. Um, and this is how Paul is speaking to them to be slaves of Christ. And, and notice how Paul speaks to them with each one of these passages. Starting in verse 5, he says, Serve them sincerely as you would serve Christ. Verse 6, As slaves of Christ, do the will of God with all your heart. 
Notice again the replacing of the master, of the earthly master, with the heavenly master. Verse 7, work with enthusiasm as though you were working for the Lord rather than for people. Verse 8, remember that the Lord will reward each one of us. Right? So all of this is saying that now that Christ is your master, in verse 9, slaves and masters, both, he says, you both have the same master in heaven. Paul couldn't be more clear here. He couldn't say it any more clearly than he is. That The application couldn't be more clear, that Christ is now our master, whether slave or free, Christ is our master. And we are to do everything for him as slaves of Christ. He states this explicitly in chapter 3 of Colossians and says, whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it in the name of the Lord Jesus. Everything we do is to do with Christ as our, as our master. You know, there was an old story of, of three men working on a building, of, of building a cathedral and, and pounding out stones, and someone came to ask them and said to the first guy, like, what are you doing here? And the guy says, ah, just chipping away at stones. The next guy, he says, what are you doing? And he says, I'm just trying to earn a paycheck. The third guy says, what are you doing? And he says, I'm building a cathedral to bring honor and glory to my God and my king. All three doing the same job, all three had very different masters, right? All three had different, completely different understandings of why they were doing what they were doing. Ultimately, they served a very different master. Is this possible for us today? I mean, this seems kind of crazy. Can we actually do this today? Can a father or a mother who are trying to make food for kids, not that ours would ever do this, but who refuse any new kind of food, you keep trying to train them to you know, try new foods and new ways and do different things, and they reject every single bit of it? Can a father do that or mother do that and serve their kids as though they're serving Christ with joy? I don't yet know about that one. Um, <laughs> growing on that one. Can an accountant prepare books or prepare taxes as though they're actually serving Christ, not just their employer? Can a teacher, a salesman, or a waiter, or an electrician, or even a pastor serve others as though they're serving Christ and actually see him as their ultimate master? Even if people criticize even if we're underpaid, even if we feel as though we're unrecognized. If a slave can do this, who has no option to leave, who's under the threat of death and maiming if they disobey, for whom the boss has no incentive to treat them well or give them any kind of benefit. If Paul can say this is what a spirit-filled Christian does, it's how they live, how much more so for us in our context today? We have options. We have control. We can quit. We're not working under the, de- the threat of death or of maiming. But Paul says we must serve. A slave must serve as though serving Christ with sincerity. And that just seems insane. Verse, uh, the next one, he says in verse 6, Obey them not only to win their favor when their eye is on you, but as slaves of Christ doing the will of God from your heart. Not just when their eye is on you, but also serve them when they're not looking. I mean, how crazy is this for Paul to ask of this? For a slave to serve their master even better when they're not watching, when there's no eye upon them. He says, look, don't be people pleasers, but be pleasers of God. Now, I know this passage is far more speaking something beyond the workplace, but let's just apply it to the workplace real quickly and use that sword to open up this letter because it's, the, the application is just so obvious here. How many of us work harder when our supervisor or boss is around? Most people would, unless you're salaried or you're a manager or an owner of some kind. That's how you would respond. How many of us put in less effort when we're not being managed or not being overseen or or not being watched in any way? There's no accountability. Paul is saying to a slave, work just as hard when your master's not there. 
They get nothing for it. There's nothing for them to receive. There's no benefit for them. But what is the benefit, he says? Work as though working for the Lord. Why? Because they're not supposed to be serving earthly masters. They're slaves of Christ. I mean, you get how crazy this is. For Paul to say, your life in Christ applies even here, even in this extreme situation. He says, your new life in Christ should should, should completely determine how you live in all circumstances, including as a slave. Who do we really work for in our job that maybe we don't like, or a job that we don't want because I can't work there because i got to do something of significance? He's saying, no, a slave's job just building roads, they're not going to feel as significant. He says, in that place, serve as though serving Christ. Whether you're flipping burgers at McDonald's, trying to convince children to try new foods, or coding websites to greater efficiency, writing code and painting a wall, or selling a product, really any context, he's saying serve as though serving Christ. And then Paul continues in the next verse, in verse 7, he says, Work with enthusiasm, as though you were working for the Lord rather than for people. He says, on top of that, have a good attitude while you do it. Be enthusiastic as a slave, literally slaving away. I mean, this is insane. And he's not saying this again to like nurses working in the ER who have great value in their work and know that they're saving lives. He's saying this to slaves have no incentive from which to work harder other than to make sure they don't get beaten and yet jesus says serve me when your circumstances suck when you hate your boss when you feel your work is invaluable and insignificant serve me bring me glory in how you till the fields bring me glory in how you cook food for someone else's table that you don't get to eat worship me as you build the road and this is what paul is constantly pointing to We are not slaves to earthly masters, but to our heavenly master. We don't submit to our husbands because our husbands are worthy of submission, but because Jesus is worthy and he is our master. We don't submit to human lords because they are worthy of submission, but because Jesus is our Lord and he is worthy of submission and service. Ultimately, it all comes back to Jesus over and over again. We are to be followers of Jesus and reflect him to the world. No matter the context, no, no matter the audience, among our, our parents, uh, whether it be our children, our slaves, our, our, our spouses, our masters, our sisters, our bosses, volunteers, the rich, the poor, it doesn't matter the context. We are called to live like Jesus, to be Jesus with skin on, as we talked about last week, to, to live and love like Jesus. Amen? We are called to glorify God through our lives and through our work, regardless of the context. And if a slave could glorify Christ in how they work, where they have no options, how much more is that calling upon us? Even if we feel an injustice is happening, we are called to love others and love God as slaves of Christ. Even when we're being wronged like a slave is. Even when there's an injustice. Even if we're on the phone with Comcast after two hours of them jacking up our bill and refusing and keep overcharging us. Even if the waitress gets the order wrong. Even if the mechanic is overcharging us intentionally for work they never did. Even if the driver cuts us off. Even if your daughter blows curfew and comes home drunk again. Even if you're a slave being worked to death by a taskmaster. Even if you're crucified on a cross. We are called to be slaves of Christ, no matter the injustice. We are called to glorify God as slaves of Christ in all contexts, at all times. We are called to increasingly love him and love others all the time.
Doesn't mean we can't speak up for rights. Doesn't mean we got to stay in a dead-end job we don't like. In fact, he tells slaves multiple times, get freedom if you can, right? Seek out a better job if you can. Sure, go for it. But this isn't just about my interests. As slaves, it's about, Lord, how can I serve you? I'm a slave for Christ. And as a Christian, I reflect Jesus to the world in all things, even when no one is looking. I love how Pastor Steve always talks about the Jesus account. I loved watching him and working him do this. The, the things that we do when no one is looking. Right? All the stuff we do to serve God when no one sees it. When there's no boss looking over our shoulder. When, when no one even knows that we're serving other than the Lord. When our spouse doesn't see it. When our kids don't see it. When no one sees what we're doing. And we keep serving because we are serving the Lord, not man. The highest priority is to please the Father. And Jesus Christ our Lord. It's to serve our heavenly master. And that's our calling. Paul doesn't want them to be slaves. Again, he tells them to get out if they can. But the thing is, even if they are freed from slavery, they're still slaves. They're slaves of Christ. Just a whole different form of it. And then we get to the craziest part of this in verse 9. And this is where it gets insane. Paul says this, Masters, treat your slaves in the same way. He says, don't threaten them. Remember, you both have the same master in heaven, and he has no favorites. So we can understand in some way the concept of Paul telling a slave to submit to a master. I mean, that concept makes sense to us. And he tells them to you know, honor them and work for them and, and to cherish them in all these ways with sincerity and, and humility and honor for the master. Okay, I can, maybe I can get my head around that. But then look what he just says here. Masters, do the same thing to your slaves. Masters, do the same thing. Treat your servants. All that stuff I just said about your servants to you, now you do the same thing to your servants. The same way. Love them, care for them, serve them. It's just rewriting Ephesians 5.21, which we looked at a few weeks ago, which said, submit yourselves one to another out of fear and reverence for Christ. He applied it to husbands, and wives, said, wives, submit to your husbands. We saw also husbands, submit to your wives. He's applied it to children. Some par- children, submit to your parents. And parents, thereby also submit to your children. And now, he says, slaves, obey and submit to your masters. And now, in the same way, the same writing, masters, basically, submit to your slaves. 521, love one another. Humbly serve, sacrificially love one another. Masters to your slaves in the same way. It's mutual submission, even from masters to slaves. Can you imagine a slave owner hearing this message? That would have been a tough message to hear. I mean, Paul can't actually expect me to love a slave like that. I'm the master, not the slave. They serve me, not the other way around. A master doing this would have to care for and compensate and actually love the slave and treat them as a brother or sister and serve them wholeheartedly as well. And if they do that, what happens to slavery? Basically becomes pointless. It's completely undermined. Paul is redefining the whole concept of slavery. There's this great passage in Galatians we've been looking at recently, Galatians 5.13, where he says, you are my brothers and sisters. And we, he said, you, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free, but do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh. Rather, serve one another humbly in love. All Christians, including slaves, are called to be free. But what he says, serve one another humbly love, that word serve literally means in the Greek to slave. Be a slave to one another humbly in love is what he tells them. All Christians, including slave masters, are called to serve one another humbly in love 
That's our calling, to live in love like Jesus. All Christians are called to take Jesus' teaching seriously, to use our freedom in Christ to serve one another humbly in love. You know, maybe slaves couldn't change their job. What Paul is saying is they can change who their master is. They can't change their vocation, but they can change their master. And we are called to do the same, whatever our position, whatever our work. Paul states it explicitly in 1 Corinthians. He says, were you a slave when you were called? Don't let that trouble you. He says, it's okay. Although if you can gain your freedom, do it. Become a free if you can. But he's saying that's not what's important, whether you're a slave to a physical master or not. For the one who was a slave when called to the faith in the Lord is the Lord's freed person, meaning Jesus has offered him freedom in Christ. Similarly, the one who was free or a master when called is now Christ's slave. He's saying, your institution of slavery is irrelevant because we are all slaves of Christ. There is no difference. In every context, including for masters and slaves, we are called to be slaves of Christ. So is Paul just using hyperbole here? I mean, it almost seems like as I'm going through this and preaching it or, or studying it, I mean, so often I, I like that word that Tim Keller uses that we often feel like we're like in the spiritual nosebleed seats of the stadium. Like, this is getting so high up that is this really even doable? I mean, who could actually live this out? Clearly, this is just hyperbole. This is like Jesus saying, you will do greater things than me. And we're like, yeah, whatever. No way could Paul actually mean this. No way does Paul actually think a slave should serve a master. No way does he think a slave should love a master like a brother or a sister. I mean, Imagine if a slave had run away and had maybe stolen something or done something to hurt the master and runs away and he goes back. Would Paul actually expect that person to treat that slave with like a fancy welcome and to give him a meal and to celebrate their return? No way. That would be insane. And if you haven't read the letter of Ephesians yet, you would be sure that's insane until you read the letter of Philemon. And the letter of Philemon is about Paul writing to a slave owner named Philemon who's a leader in the church. And his slave Onesimus has run away and found Paul, who's at home house arrest. And while there, Onesimus comes to Christ and he's working with Paul. And Paul sends him home to, to Philemon, his slave master, after Onesimus has stolen from him, run away, and he's gone back. And the only option for Philemon is to beat him severely. That's the only option in that culture, in that response. And what Paul tells him is he says, no, treat him as your brother. And not only that, the insane statement, verse 17 of Philemon, he says this. So if you consider me your partner, Philemon, welcome Onesimus as you would welcome me, the Apostle Paul. That's insane. Don't just receive him back. Don't stick him in the corner. I want you to prepare a great feast for him. I want you to welcome your runaway slave as a brother in Christ with the same fanfare you will when the Apostle Paul is freed from prison and comes to see you. I want you to celebrate him as a brother, as a brother in the Lord, as a family member returned from slavery to freedom. That's how you treat your slave. Is Paul exaggerating? No, because the next verse he says, and I'm coming to check up on you to make sure you do it. Paul isn't joking. This is actually his understanding. We are called to be slaves of Christ. It's the upside-down kingdom of God. It's something that doesn't make any logical sense by our way of viewing it. He says, this is what we are called to as Christians, to love in radical and crazy ways. To relook at the entire world through this lens of Jesus being the center of our lives. 
We need a new, we need to reimagine the world through the lenses of Jesus Christ and his calling upon us. Because so often it's twisted. Paul couldn't even see how messed up slavery was in his world because it was the water he was swimming in. How many areas of our own life do we not even see the brokenness and the evil around us because it's just what we've become so familiar with? Because we don't reimagine it through the lens of Christ. This should radically change our parenting. It should change our marriages. It should change the way we, we work in our works. And it should change our politics. It should change the way we view the poor and the way we view the broken. It should change the way we view healthcare and how we engage with neighbors. I mean, if this is real, it should change every single aspect of our life where we view our lives through the lens of Christ is on the throne and we are all masters of him and we are seeking to serve him and his ways and his leanings as he is Lord of our life on everything, even masters to slaves. No part of our life is untouched by this, according to Paul. What broken systems are around us that we just accept as part of the water? You see, one of the problems is so many Christians, we accept Christ, and we think that Jesus is just there as like a, just to make our lives better, like a, a booster, maybe like an ointment just to make us feel better to just give us a hug in this life, to, to endure through it on our own terms. But following Jesus is not about just having a better life. It's about a new kind of life, a new way of living, of following the way of Jesus. Matthew 11, Jesus says this. He says, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. When Jesus says, Take my yoke upon you, for my yoke is easy, my burden is light, he's not saying, Accept Jesus, and I will help you carry all that stuff that you're carrying. And do all the stuff that you want to do. That's not taking his yoke. That's asking him to take ours. That's not what he says. I mean, that's how most Christians seem to understand it. That we accept Jesus and he'll just make our life easier. But that's not what he says. He says, take my yoke. Not give me yours. Take mine. Come alongside me. Not, I will just come alongside you. He says, I will show you a new way to live. Learn from me. Not try to fit me into your life, but come experience my way of living, a new way of life. I will show you this new way of living, and my way of living is so much better of yours. My yoke, my way of living brings life and joy and peace. It's radical because for so many Christians, we're still just trying to fit Jesus into the cracks of our life. Just trying to shove him down and put him as glue in all those areas that are broken. He's saying, no, 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 let me show you a new way of living. We just try and ask Jesus to bless our plans and to fix what we've broken, what we think is best. We want Jesus to be yoked to us and just help push and grunt through all the stuff that we want to do in our own ways and our own brokenness. And instead, Jesus offers us a better way of living, a way of life. But he's got to be Lord of our life. He must be our master. So how do we live this out? How do we live out the grid of him becoming our master, not ourselves? Because the reality is this, this will change everything about our life. The more we experience this, the more our lives will experience life, but radical change. It'll change the kind of media we consume. It'll change how we parent. It'll change how we spend our time. It'll change how we communicate to others. It'll change how we care for our parents, how we pray. It changes everything. There's nothing in life that this doesn't touch. 
when we live out this upside-down kingdom of God. And what this passage shows is it's so much more than just the workplace. It's literally every area of life. But yes, it definitely applies to the workplace. So if you have a job, apply it there. Absolutely. Are we working just for the sake of our master? I mean, there's endless application for this in the workplace. I mean, take this to the Lord as an application, Lord. Where am I not seeing you as a master? I'm just working for, I'm slaving away for someone else the way I see it. Absolutely apply it there. But it's so much more than that. To only do that, we miss on the 99% of the message, which is he's saying we are called to have him Lord of our life, of our entire lives. That he wants to guide and direct our paths. So today, where are we not bringing our lives under his lordship? Where are we refusing to see Jesus as master? Unwilling to submit to him. Maybe in parenting house. Hey, right now, with all that's going on, with so much gender confusion, other stuff, just saying, no, my understanding of sexuality is better than yours. Maybe in how we spend our money, we choose vacations, what jobs we choose, how we work. I mean, there's every aspect of life. Lord, where am I just running according to my best and not even inviting you into it to seek your way? Where are we asking Jesus to yoke to us and just push harder on our stuff? And saying, Lord, I want to be under your will, under your ways. You know, over and over I quote Jesus' call for us of why he says he came. That we may have life and have it in abundance. But that's when we follow his way of life. It involves a reorientation, a reimagining of every single part of our life. So we're going to take communion now. And communion is such a beautiful illustration of this. Of the new life that Christ gives us. When Jesus, on the night that he was arrested and betrayed, he came before his disciples and at the meal that they were they're having, the final meal together, and he tells them that he wants them to take this bread, that he tells them, I'm going to be leaving. He says, I want you to take this bread as a remembrance of my body that is broken for you, of me laying my life down for you. Take this bread and do this as a way of remembering that my body is broken for you. This is how I've lived my life for you. So he says, take this bread. So let's take it. And then Jesus takes the cup of wine. He says, this blood, this cup represents my blood that's shed for you. He hadn't even died yet. He already was speaking of this in the present tense. I'm about to give my life for you. Horrifically, he's about to be tortured on their behalf. He says, my body is shed for you. My blood is poured out for you. This is how I'm loving you. He says, take this and remembering the sacrifice that I've given to you. And what's crazy about this is as we celebrate communion, remember this. And he tells us to remember. Is the moment the disciples finish taking the bread, John 13 tells us. The moment it finishes, Jesus says, it's time for me to go. And then Jesus says this. A new command I give to you. Love one another the way that I love you. So that's how you're to love one another. 
Literally, it's right after communion. The final words Jesus speaks, this is the bookend between washing his disciples' feet as an act of serving them in sacrificial love. They have their meal, they take communion, and the next words out of his mouth, love one another this way. This is the way of life, the central command of Jesus' life. This is how we are called to live as children of God, to love one another sacrificially the way Christ has loved us. Amen? Let's pray. Jesus, we just thank you, Lord, that, oh, Lord, that you paid it all for us, Lord. You've given it all for us. You've showed us the way. You gave your life for us so we can experience your life. But, Lord, so often we, we hold on to all of our stuff. We fight to hold on to all the garbage of our life, the things that we think is the best way, without relinquishing, saying, Lord, I want you to be Lord of my life. So, Father, may you continue to penetrate our hearts. Draw us deeper into your embrace. And, Lord, may you help us to not just call you Savior or friend, but may also be able to call you Lord and Master, Curios. Jesus, we need you as Lord and Master. Help us to reimagine. Give us a fresh vision of the life you've called us to to be yoked to you, Jesus. Not just to ask you to fill into the cracks, but Lord, to reimagine life with you. With you as master of our marriage, of parenting, of our workplace. To serve you, to live for you, to experience your life. For us to be Jesus with skin on to the world, Lord. Thank you for the gift of life. And then we pray. Amen.